on January 2nd this year, uh, Monday Night Football had what would end up being the, being the largest viewership of, of, a, of an NFL football game. It was 23 million people watching the game. How many of you know what I, the day that I'm talking about? How many of you are watching that game? Because that became a, 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 a powerful moment and, and sort of a, a heart-stopping moment, literally, uh, in, in uh, the life of those those people, 23 million people, and specifically of Buffalo Bill safety, Damar Hamlin, who took a hit to the chest and stood up and then, as we watched, fell to the ground, lifeless. His team crowded around him as medical personnel performed CPR, and it took 19 minutes to get him off the field, uh, 19 minutes of agonizing waiting uh, and wondering uh, from his teammates who were watching and then who joined in a circle and prayed. And, uh, and then a lot of us prayed. I don't know about you, but for me, that I, 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 I'm, I, I pray some. I really prayed that night, and I think many of you did too. It was, it was, it was a, an emotional moment and, and a powerful moment. Uh, even one of the NFL Live sportscasters you may have seen uh, just simply stopped in the middle of the the, the, the live t television show and, and said a prayer. And a lot of people felt compelled to join, including some people outside the hospital as there was a prayer vigil of people from both teams. The the unity of that moment, 23 million people were watching a game and then 23 million people were transformed into a united community, all united in looking for one thing to happen, for one person to live. Hmm. I get emotional thinking about it now. And as I prepped the, and got this, the, the video and the pictures together, it's just, it's, a, it's moving. Uh, and uh, so then that, that moment uh, at the Super Bowl when he came out and they were celebrating the people who had helped him and then he walks out, powerful moment. And on January 2nd, there were a lot of people wondering if that kind of celebration would ever be possible, that somebody would be revived like that and not just have life again, but to have life in, in a fuller sense, uh, to, 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 be, to be alive. In the passage that we read today from Ezekiel, there is that same tension, only brought really to the, the full extreme as we think about an entire people. And the, the people of Israel had gotten past the point where they thought that kind of new life would be possible for them again. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, this is, the, as we've gone through Lent in this season leading up to Easter, if you've been here, you may have noticed that all of the sermons have uh, the, the, the first two letters of the, of the word for the sermon of the day is R-E, like restore or reconcile. And today our word is revive, which literally means re-life, to have life again. We've been talking about how, <clears throat> uh, without having said it, we've been talking about how God not only does stuff, but how God redoes stuff. I know that doesn't like really maybe work grammatically, but how there is an element of how God works that when things come apart, when Humpty Dumpty comes off the wall, 
and breaks into pieces, and we wonder if all the king's horses and all the king's men could ever put him back together again. In fairy tales, that ends one way, (laughs) and in God's story, there is always an element of things falling apart, breaking apart, coming undone. Life and hope and good things being called into question or being lost. And then always the tension of, can that come back together again? Ezekiel 37 is that story uh, for the whole people of Israel. It is a symbolic thing. It's a, it's a vision. It's, a, it's an image. It's a metaphor. Ezekiel has a dream. And uh, maybe you've had a dream where you've maybe eaten one too many tacos before you went to bed and some weird stuff happens. Uh, this is not that kind of thing, but it is pretty, pretty wild, pretty bizarre. As, uh, as Ezekiel has a dream from God about the state of things among his people. Israel had reached the point in which they, it felt foolish for them to believe that reviving was possible. They felt dry, empty, as good as dead. They felt cut off. They felt hopeless. And this story is very much a story of hope. And I kind of want to just tuck that away for you for a second. It is a question of whether it makes sense at all to hope. It's something we've been talking about through Lent. And, um, and it is because they are in exile. The people are in exile. Babylon, Babylon has destroyed their people, destroyed their land, destroyed their temple. And, um, the, and they're in exile. Now, uh, this is, exile uh, is, is sort of a, a, an important strategy and kind of need to understand it. Uh, the, the conquering empire came in, they, they tore everything apart that was good. Uh, but, but this is more about a mental state than it is anything physical because walls can be rebuilt and temples even can be rebuilt and king can, can kingdoms can be put back together. But when you lose hope and when you lose leadership and when you lose people who can be part of the transformation, when you take the, their hope away and you take them away, then you really have done something. And that's what exile is. So it's never that all of the people of Israel <clears throat> were taken historically into exile. But all of the people who had any power, any influence, who could have done anything about it, those people were hauled off into another country and set up to live there for a generation. And with that is the loss of real hope. I mean, practically speaking, how does anything really ever change? It's, it's, a, it's a tactical move to make sure that, that people are, are not brought back to life. That's the whole point. And into that void, into that hopelessness, Ezekiel has a dream, and this is the dream. He says, the Lord, hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out of, by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. This is a metaphor for the people of Israel, as um, they had once had a sense that God was somehow part of their history. And the God element of this is really important. They had a sense that God was somehow connected to history and that it mattered and there was meaning and it was going someplace. And that maybe most of all is the thing that's lost. And it, there's no life in the dream anymore. It's as good as dead. This symbolism would not have been lost on the prophet Ezekiel. But as he was standing there looking at the bones, God asks him a question. And I hope this this question, uh, as we say in the country, will stick in your craw today. It, it will, will find resonance with you. 
the question that God asks Ezekiel. Son of man, he says, can these bones live? Son of man means literally, hey, human guy. Basic guy. Here's the question. Can these bones live? Now let's pause there for a second because the story gets really weird and really interesting and really wonderful. But, you know, we kind of know where it's heading. Headed. You, you heard, heard it uh, read already. Yes, the answer is going to be yes. Can these dry bones live? And God's going to do this and God's going to bring life back to the people. So why doesn't God just say, okay, let's, let me just cut to the chase and get to the end of the story and you know, like show up, make it clear, do the thing, and then, then you don't even have to ask the question. Why doesn't God just do the miracle? Why doesn't God just step in and do the thing? For some reason, God needs to start Ezekiel on a process. And that process, as we see, may not have noticed that Ezekiel was going through a process through the story. And the the process begins as God engages Ezekiel, as he does us, and asks us a question of faith. It's a question of belief. It's a question of hope. Can these bones live? It is a question that really I think God asks all of us that brings us into the process. I don't know fully why God doesn't just do the thing and then we go, oh my gosh, and then we go on. But there's something to, I did not plan it that way, by the way. It just came out that way. There's something to us being, God seems determined from the beginning of the story in Genesis on to bring people like us into this thing. And so God is asking every one of us this question, can those dry bones live? And what, whatever that represents for you or for us, it is a question really about hope. Can we risk hope? I think a couple of weeks ago we said out of Romans 5 that, um, that suffering uh, leads to endurance and endurance character and character hope. And then hope doesn't disappoint us. And one way to translate that is that living in this state of hopefulness will not put us to shame. Is it really okay? Does it make any sense to hope? That's a question we're all kind of asking. And is it actually a question that God brings to us? Can, can you bring hope to this equation? Whether it makes sense or not, whether you're discouraged or not, whether you look around and all you see is dry bones. The question is, can, can those dry bones live? I love Ezekiel's answer because he says, you alone, Lord, know. Now, uh, there are a few ways to understand that. One might be that he just says, Lord knows. Like, right? When you look at the, the thing, you're like, I don't, Lord knows. We say that, don't we? Lord knows if anything can be done with that. It might sound a little bit more pious than that. Like, you, Lord, know. You, you know, which we say sometimes, right? When we, when we don't know, we say, oh, well, God knows. We, we believe that God knows. But it also is a little bit of a cop-out because Ezekiel doesn't answer the question, can these bones live? You, Lord, you alone know, which I think might be, be him saying, it doesn't really look like it. But I'm going to bring God into, just, into the equation just enough that there all, of course there's always possibility. And the good news is that's enough. Ezekiel kind of gets away with that. God doesn't drill down and say, you know, like, I need you to have more faith than that. You're going to have to be more energetic than that. It's like just a little bitty bit, okay, of God having the crack in the door. Can these bones live? And, And he says, I guess maybe possibly. And God says, good enough. And so the story continues as, uh, as Ezekiel is brought further along in the process. 
So God says, next step, then prophesy to the bones. Now, that may seem a little weird to us. Prophesy is not a word that we use, and if we do use it, it is usually in a context of it's a little, little strange, right? Somebody talks about that outside of a church context, we probably get a little antsy. You see those people on TV doing those kinds of things, and we kind of flip the channel. But here's the thing to understand. Ezekiel was a prophet. It was his job to listen to God, to encounter God and speak for the people. That's what prophets do. Prophets always have a re part of their mission, by the way. The re that we've been talking about, restore, reconcile, revive. They always have an element of bringing the people back to God, back to their relationship to God, and back to a restored sense of God's presence in their, sto- in their story. It's a connection thing and it's a hope thing, which of course is a pretty important role, but a challenging one when things aren't going well. So Ezekiel has the task of calling people back to God when they feel like God is the furthest away that he could be. So God says to the prophet, prophesy. In other words, he's saying, hey, do your job. Do the thing that you do, which is speak God's possibility into the situation. That's all it is. Ezekiel's job, in fact, was to speak God's limitless possibility into a situation that seems completely hopeless. That's a tough job, isn't it? Pretty challenging job. But God tells him to do it. Ezekiel, prophesy over these bones. Okay, let's pause again. Because why doesn't God just do the thing? Why doesn't God just say, okay, okay, I've asked you, can you can these bones live? Ezekiel kind of gives the answer. And God says, all right, let me show you. Yes, they can. Definitively, it's done. Boom. Nope, there's still a process. So now after the question, can you have just a little smidge of hope? Yes. Okay, then, then do something about it. <laughs> like, There's a job to do. You have a role here. And I don't know why fully, why God doesn't just do the thing and why God seems determined to bring us along. Because don't you think it would be a lot easier if he didn't have to? Because we're terrible at this hope thing. We don't always keep our framework in mind. We don't always uh, see how God is at work. And then we're asked not only to believe it, but to act on it when everything seems hopeless It would be a lot easier for us if God would just do the thing, right? But somehow he seems determined to bring us along in the process where we not only begin to shape our mindset about situations, but also begin to act differently in them and to do our part. Now, what's almost ridiculous about that is because our part is so small. We don't don't have a lot to do here. Just say a word over the situation. Can, it, can, can these bones live? Well, then speak that over them. Speak God's possibility over the situation. That's it. That's it. And of course, what happens when Ezekiel does that? The bones start to come back together again. The bone connect to bone, tendon connect to muscle. The, the structure of the thing, the, of the people, becomes, uh, is coming back together again. Knee bones connected to the, you know, that kind of situation. And you would think, okay, that's pretty good. That's pretty, pretty incredible. Maybe you have been in a situation that seems hopeless, and your prayer is actually for this, for this part, that stuff would just come back together again. It's what we say with Humpty Dumpty, right? Can, can you put it back together again? 
it's a structural thing. Can we just like, can the thing come back together? Can it get, can it find organization? Can it find structure? Like during the pandemic, when these seats were empty and I was preaching to a red dot on a camera and you're like, can God put this back together again? My only hope was that it would somehow come back together structurally, if I'm honest. And this is what we did when we pray, right? Like, God, can you just do this thing that gets us back to something that has a semblance of normal? My go-to story with this is when I was in, um, it was preaching when I was probably 20. It was Easter Sunday. And my mom was in, we had family in. And on Saturday, we had eaten some great stuff, including, which um, I'm convinced is the culprit, which is this cream cheese and uh, cocktail sauce and shrimp that set out for a while. And I woke up at four o'clock Easter Sunday morning to proclaim that Jesus was alive and wasn't sure I was going to be. The mo- literally the most sick I've been in my life. And I, I was like, what do you do? And so I prayed, God, just get me through. Just get me through. And I walked into the church. And I won't lie and say that I felt like, you know, skipping and, you know, dancing. But I felt alive enough to, to talk about Jesus and act like I meant it. I felt a little bit alive. And I walked outside. It was like I hit the door of the church to go home. I stepped out. And it was like, boom. It just hit me again. And I threw up all day. And so my go-to on that is like, why didn't I pray for God just to like, like not just get me through, but get me over it, right? Why do we do that? Like, like just put it back together again is what we pray. But somehow God has determined that he's going to bring us along in a process where we bring a hope to the equation and then we act out of that hope. And then, and then God does more than we think he would, more than we actually think is possible. Because the bones come together and God's like, not good enough. Do it again. Speak over the bones again. And then what happens? The winds come from the four directions of the earth. Anytime you hear wind and spirit and breath together, uh, they didn't understand how all this works. They just knew what you breathe wind in and you breathe it out and people are alive which is not a bad understanding of things. And so the wind blows from every direction and fills the void where there had only been death. And that death is not only put together, but now is fully restored alive again, full of vitality, full of life. That's a pretty great story, isn't it? And somehow God seems to bring us along in the process. So then he turns back to Ezekiel and says, here, this is not just a bad uh, taco dream. This is a vision for your people. And you go and you tell them this story. I will put my spirit in you. I will do this for you. And you will live. And God does. And that moment is a moment that plays out throughout history. And so let me describe another time for you. Maybe you can imagine that it's not so hard to think about the tensions that play out today. 
It's hard to imagine, it's not hard to imagine uh, as we think about how this plays out in history, that there has maybe a time when people didn't have a lot of hope. You might be able to think of that kind of time, a time when God uh, seems far from us, or imagine uh, people losing interest in what God's doing through people, through the, for us would be the church. They look at the church and say, how is this any different than the rest of the world? Where is God in all of this mess? I'm not sure I want to be a part of it. When structures and, and systems and institutions have been taken apart, but also hope and a sense of purpose in it. Imagine a time when scientific information was, a, it was uh, intention and reason was intention with faith. And people were having a hard time meshing the two, what we learn in science and what we learn through the rational world and where does faith fit into that and does it matter? Imagine a time when poverty and injustice were so rampant that people would look at the state of the world and they would say, I don't see how God could be in this. Imagine looking at the people of God and seeing their failures and wondering if the whole situation was beyond hope. Now, it probably isn't hard for us to imagine that because you think that I'm maybe talking about right now, and I'm not. I tricked you. Actually, I set that up to tell you the story of our movement as a church, because that what I just described describes England in the 1700s. Uh, and I'm not like a great historian, but I do know enough to know that the Reformation was a tremendously turbulent time in Europe. And as that came to England and as, as it played out there, uh, people were kind of done with all the religious infighting. And England was so caught in the middle, in fact, uh, in the time leading up to John Wesley's life, that they were Catholic, and then they created the Church of England, and then they were Catholic again, and then it went back and forth. It was like church hokey pokey. You didn't know which foot to put in where, and you, you better figure it out because your life could hang in the balance if you didn't have the right allegiance. And it disrupted their monarchy. It disrupted their world. And people were done. People were over it. They were tired of the church not acting like the church should act. On top of that, the Enlightenment was happening with its emphasis on science and reason. It was coming onto the scene and people who had a worldview in which uh, faith and belief and mystery and mysticism were just a part of the, the world they lived in, began to understand and explain things and figure out how breath worked, what oxygen was. You know, as, as we've come to it, this thing that's played out through, throughout the, you know, the history since then, this tension between a mystical worldview, a faith worldview, and a scientific one. And, and people were starting to say, maybe we don't need God. There were people grappling with their faith because there was so much poverty around. And they looked at the world and said, where's God in this? Because the, the, our children are starving and people, alcoholism was rampant and the, the poor were being exploited. And that was the scene that John Wesley rode into, literally, on his horse. Uh, and his job was to be a preacher, to be a prophet, to speak God's possibility into situations that seem hopeless. His task was to revive the, the Church of England and wanted to start a movement of lay people that had that hope in them that it was possible to revive the church for the state of the world. 
And he began to preach. Uh, John Wesley rode around uh, creating a network, and uh, his means of doing that was to go different places and to ride a horse and uh, started a group of preachers who did that. And John Wesley himself rode 250,000 miles in his lifetime on the back of a horse and uh, began to experiment with ways of getting the message out. That, that would hurt, right? The, the horse. Um, that would hurt. Um, he, he started to experiment. One of the radical things they did was to begin to proclaim the message of God's abundant grace outside where people would hear it. And, and that may seem strange in our context, but it was a revolution in theirs of going to the people, the people who weren't really allowed into the building or who wouldn't feel comfortable in the building, weren't of a class that could come into the church. They went to them and began to speak of a grace that could save us to the uttermost that there wasn't a single thing, a part of us that couldn't have the life of Christ transform it and began to change people's perspectives. It began to give them that sense of hope. They began to get together and then it became a movement of ordinary people like us who began not only then to uh, put things, the world back together uh, in in their brains, but in their lives. So uh, one example of that is that in our tradition, reason and faith have never been intention. We've always found a way to have some conversation about that and aren't super, super threatened by that. Another thing that is an important part of our tradition is that, um, that we embodied the message. And so if there was poverty, we went to it. If there were people in prison, we went to the prisons. If children needed school or they needed food or they needed help, we went to that point of need. And we... Uh, brought together what John Wesley called works of piety and works of mercy. Worship and social justice all came came together in a sense of God's work in the story. John Wesley not only proclaimed the good news, he created a movement of people that believed it and then lived it out. Can these dry bones live? I'll tell you that story because in our tradition, we found the answer is yes. I tell you that not so that um, I think the world, everybody has to be a Methodist. It's not like I'm not saying that we need to convert all the Baptists and all the Catholics and all the Church of Christ people to be Methodist. I tell you the story because I just think maybe we ought to be. Like that's the goal, that we would be the people that believe this thing is true and that these dry bones can live and that that's our role in society, to be the people who get asked the question, and have to wrestle with it ourselves, and then who get called to act, and then who expect God to do a little bit and then get blown away by what God can do. Because the thing the thing that I want to make sure I don't fail to mention is that part of the equation is Ezekiel is there to see it when God does it. And that's part of our equation too, that we get to be there when God does it. In a time not unlike today, our tradition our faith has said, yeah, God can make dry bones live. And so what if that became our role? I'll confess in those days when I was preaching to the red light in this empty room, I didn't think this room could be anywhere close to full again. And yet here you all are. And I, and I, I wrestled with this as I thought about the story. I wondered if this was just for me or if it was for you too. So I'm going to think maybe it's for all of us. I think uh, in my mind, I, there was a time where I would have said, this is good enough. Yeah, God's brought us back together structurally. But here's the good news. God's not done. 
God is about to breathe into us with new life that we don't think is even possible. And not just for our sake, but for the sake of the world that is dry and broken and needs life. And this is the good news of how God works. On January 2nd, 23 million people prayed for one person to live. I looked it up. There are 2.2 billion Christians in the world. And what if our task is to be the people who pray for the world to live? And to pray like we mean it. Pray as if somebody's life depended on it. Pray in that sense of unity that the rest kind of doesn't matter, but this does and we're going to come together and we're going to hope for the sake of the world. I think that's where God is leading us as we come close to the cross in the next weeks. And as we come to the empty tomb, this is a story of death and resurrection. And we are the people who bring the hope. Can these dry bones live? It's a question for all of us. And I want to ask you to ask it and hear God ask it as we pray together. Let's pray. God, as we think about that question, can these dry bones live? We think about the situations of our lives, of our families, of our community, of our church, and of our world. And we confess that we have not always seen your possibility. We confess we don't see it now in a lot of ways. And yet you ask us, can these dry bones live? That question might be about a situation, it might be about a person, it might have a name. It might have to do with just a general sense of hope or hopelessness that we see in the world around us. Can these dry bones live? God, give us the faith to say you alone know. To bring that much openness and that much possibility into your world through our faith. And would you bring us along in a process where then we begin to act out of our hope we simply do the things that you've called us to do so that we might also be the people that see you go far beyond anything we ever ask or imagine. As you revive us, as you revive your church, as you revive communities, as you revive your world through this story of grace that we are so fortunate to tell the story of grace that we are so fortunate to be a part of through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.